Are we ready? Okay. All right. So we have, because we are not doing a video today, we have determined we are going to go ahead and actually do chapter 18 and get it talked through since we have the time. And we're going to apply it for just um, the discussion of the lesson. So we concluded it's with Luke 17 then with an eschatology plan, right? We're getting to see the, the time frame of things that Jesus actually laid it out very clearly for us to understand that there was a first coming and a second coming. He made this very clear to his disciples. They would not see it, but there would be those who would, right? And he also made very clear that in the day that he comes, it will be a time of great death right? Talks about the vultures that comes. So one of the things that we, I hope we were able to clarify very well, is where it says in verse 33 to 37, the ones, it says, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Those who lose it are the ones who are going to die, okay? So you can put a tombstone on that. And I tell you that night there will be two in the bed and one will be taken, and the one that's taken is the one who's going to die. So put a tombstone on that and the other will be left. Now, by the way, P.S., it's not in any of your homework, but the one that are going to be left is going to be all Israel who shall be saved in that day, according to Romans 11, okay? Verse 35, there will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, they will die, the other will be left. So you need a tombstone on the word taken there. And again in 36, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, they will die, tombstone, put it on there, and the other will be left. Now, how do I know that the ones taken are not, quote, the rapture, which is what some commentaries say, okay? It's because of the question that's asked that follows it and explains to you who it is that's taken. He says, in answering, they said to him, him who? Him who? Jesus. He sa they say to Jesus, where, Lord? So what's the question? Where, Lord, are they going to be taken? right? And where are they going to be taken? And Jesus said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. So what is he saying? They will be taken to death. Okay? So everywhere it says taken, it's indicating they die. The body that is going to be taken to the vultures, it, it, it's about death. And the cross-reference to that for you is Revelation 19, verses 17 to 19. In that passage, it talks about the great supper of God. So when we do our revelation study, you will get a better picture of this. But sequentially in that order, what's going to happen is when Jesus comes for uh, the purpose of uh, treading the, the winepress of God, right, and the wrath of God upon unbelieving men, and also location-wise, we're talking about... It, uh, He's going to be dealing with those nations who come against Israel. So geographically on a map, it's going to be Israel and all those nations that gather to come against her in that last day. And Jesus comes. He treads the wine press. Thousands were going to be killed. The vultures will, great for, uh, will gather for the great supper of God. So the ones taken are the ones who are unbelievers and will die in that day. S Consequently, what he's depicting for them, and he's letting them know, his first coming, he came to, it's missing. <laughs> His first coming, he came for salvation. There, but he's going to be rejected and he's going to die. He's going to suffer. And then he says, but in that day when I do come, I'm not coming to die for you. I'm coming to, for judgment, 
right? In Revelation 19, 11, it says when he comes, he comes on a horse, and with him comes the, the bride, the, Christ, the bride of Christ, um, the righteous saints. We come on white horses with him, and we will observe him in the slaughter of the unbelievers. And then the, they will be eaten by the vultures, it says in that verse uh, 17 to 19 of chapter 19 in Revelation. Okay, so that's where we conclude. We have a timeline given about what's going to occur in that last day. He's, he is distinguished between his first coming and his second coming. The qualities of those two time frames are very different. First one was for him to suffer for us. The second one will be for judgment, right? Now he's going on to Luke 18, and it's very interesting to me. In verses 1 to 8 is our first segment, our first paragraph. And what do you see going there? What is he talking about? A parable. And what is, he, what is the truth message of that parable? Remember, we talked about parables have a, a specific truth message. It's usually one point. What is he saying in there that they are to do? Uh-huh. So it's about not losing heart. Um, when you look at that... Losing heart. Did anybody look that up by chance? Did you do a word study on that part of it? If you didn't, let me just read you what mine says, okay? It's number 1573. It's the it's E-K-K-A-K-E-O, and it means to faint, to be weary, to be worn out, to be exhausted, or to give up, or to be discouraged. That's pretty clear, right? So he wants them to understand, do not lose heart. How would you say, as far as, if you're looking at this author giving us a nice sequential order of things, he's giving us a concise understanding of what's going to be happening, how does this fit in relationship to what was just said in the previous section in chapter 18? What did he tell us was going to happen when he does come? Judgment. Does it kind of make sense that he would follow on with a, a word of exhortation, but don't lose heart? Keep praying, be faithful in it. So he's telling them to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And then he goes on and he gives a parable, right? So the parable is about who? A judge and a widow. And what is, what is going on between these two? The widow wants what from him? Justice. And she keeps coming back, and she keeps coming back, and she keeps coming back. And the point to that is, what does the judge end up doing? There you go. That's right. So again, when he says, don't lose heart, and he says, she kept continually coming, that word could be persistence, as you just said, Kathy, right? So I marked, keyword-wise, I marked, do not lose heart in, in the same way as I marked the word continually coming. Because the idea of persistence is what's being said here. I want you to not lose heart. I want you to continually keep coming. Be persistent, right? And he says, and the Lord said, hear what the righteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect and cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? Now, 
Here again, the word cry to him day and night is again the, the same idea or same cost, uh, concept of consistency, not losing heart. So I marked it in the same way. So now I have three times at this point where it's basically saying, don't faint, don't be discouraged, don't give up, right? Three times, don't lose heart, continually coming in verse 5, and in 7, crying to him day and night. It's that persistence in prayer, right? Then he closes it. Now, this one was interesting. Did anybody have trouble with verse 8? Does it sound like he almost changed subjects again? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, now do you see how he linked it back to what was going on in chapter uh, 17 about his coming? When the Son of Man comes, then what does he say? Will he find faith on the earth? So what is he actually saying? Will he find faith? Will there be anyone who's been persistent? Will there be anyone who continually sticks with it? Will there be? Think of what's going to happen in that in time, that those seven years of tribulation are going to be times of great distress on the earth, right? Particularly that last three and a half years where the wrath of God is being poured out. And that very end time, the last uh, of the bowls that's poured out is Jesus is coming and treading the great uh, winepress of God. He's going to be killing all the unbelievers. And he's saying, will there be any who have faith? Do you see how it ties together? When I first read this, I remember looking at that and going, what's that verse? That almost seems like a whole another subject. And I, was, I almost wanted to give it a its own paragraph title, but then I realized that what he was talking about was the subject of persistence. To, he wants them to be persistent in faith and do it through their prayer life. Keep calling out to him, keep crying out to him, keep pursuing God in all these things, and understand you're not to lose heart, even if you happen to be. So in a way, this is a message for those who in the end time are going to be in that end time. Maybe they're people who Jesus is coming, the rapture has occurred, they're left behind. We've heard that series before, the left behind series. Those who are left behind will have to persevere to the end. So this is a message to them. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Keep persevering. And he's, the Son of Man says, will I find faith on the earth when I come? There will be. And the answer is yes, because of other studies that we know. But he's, he's, it's, it's like a challenge is what he's giving to them. He's saying, will you be one of those who will persevere to the end? Do you remember when we did Hebrews? There was in chapter 3 and in chapter 6. It says, um, basically, you're of his household if you endure to the end. And he says it again in chapter 6, uh, and I can't remember how it's stated there, but it has to do with persevering to the end. And it, perseverance in faith is what is being exhorted here. And, and what helps you have a perseverance in, in your faith is understanding what God has said, what he has promised. What, you know, He's already given you the timeline. He's told you what's going to happen. And right here he's saying... If you will continue in that, if you are one among the ones who are here in that end time, do not lose heart. Keep persevering to the end. And when it comes, it will be quick. Although the seven years won't seem quick. 
that's going to be a tough, a tough one to endure. But he is literally saying to them, now, you know, at any time in there, they can come into faith and maybe even they will die because of some of these judgments, but they'll, they'll go to be with the Lord, right? Salvation will still be theirs. Uh, but some won't. And some are going to be, as it says in Zechariah, I think it's uh, Zechariah 12, where, where he says um, um, that each one of their own family and in their own group or in their own family, they will, they will basically confess their sins and they will, they will give glory to God. And he says, and I will pour out my spirit upon the house of David in that day. And so he's talking about saving all Israel. Luke, or um, rather Romans chapter 11 talks about the promises to, to Israel are irrevocable, right? That they will be fulfilled in that day. This is what he's speaking about. And he's saying, persevere in it. If you're among the ones who are there to live during those days, do not give, heart, give up. Do not lose heart. <laughs> from heaven apparently so we should learn how to ride horses do you have horses at your place um, okay well I was gonna say we could go learn well you know it's a start <laughs> it's probably where I need to start but yeah yeah so in in essence he's saying have faith have faith because he will he find faith on the earth yes be uh, persistent until he comes. Right? Okay, so that's 1 to 8. Now we're going on to 9 to 14. So it links back to chapter 17, where he's given the eschatology of things, of his first coming versus his second coming, how the second coming is going to be a time of vultures that are going to be eating the flesh of men who did not have faith. And now in Luke 18, he opens by saying, I'm encouraging you, do not lose heart, have faith, be persistent for those of you who are going to have to go through that in that day. But the message is also there for us, right? Now, he's saying that to the believers, right? And he said that earlier. You, believers, you, my disciples, you won't see this. So he, he distinguished, and he's saying, so therefore, it's not happening now in your time frame. This is something that's going to happen later. And then he says, in that day when I do come, when the Son of Man is revealed, for those who see that, this is what you need to know. And he talks about the vultures that are going to come and eat the carcasses of the unbelievers. Yeah, yes. Right. So there's application for us. Oh, absolutely. There's application for us now, but there's also application for them there because then he goes back at the close in verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, yeah. do you see it? Yeah. So it's both. Okay. It's both. So I'm just, you know, it, you, you, you really can't, do all of the Word of God in, the, in, in many ways, although sometimes there's a very specific word like for instance Matthew 24 we talked about earlier in verse 15 it starts talking about um, in Jerusalem in the day when um, 
the, the prophecies of Daniel are going to be fulfilled. And he says, don't go down to get this and don't go down to get this and flee in, into the wilderness and so forth, right? That fits with what, the, what he's saying about he, uh, in, in 17, don't go for your cloak and don't go down and get your goods, just go, right? Um, so he, there's pieces of it uh, from all the different storylines and you kind of it's just like revelation does to us which drives us crazy when we're doing it is it'll give you a little piece here and a little piece here and you have to timeline it so every single week when we're doing revelation i have a timeline and and we do some we do lists lots of lists to get our our characters identified in our in our um the events and the and the qualifications of them, the, the qualifiers that give us a, an understanding of this is happening here and this one's this is talking about this time frame and this is talking about this person and this is talking about that event and we and we'll do that too. But we're going to do timelines and every time we get a chance, we're going to plug in a piece, and it gets crazy and there's a lot of it because there's so much information in scripture about that end time. Um, but this is another one of those things where you have to go back now into Matthew and Luke and um, some of the other New Testament plays, Thessalonians and Corinth, uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, for instance, is another one with the rapture, uh, the new body and so forth. And you can plug all these things in. Some of them you don't know when they're happening, which is what? The rapture of the church. We don't know for sure what the day or the hour, but we know everything else. Okay, so now let's move on to 9 to 14. Another parable, yes? Okay, what do we see in this parable? Yes, we have, uh, and if you had to give qualifiers to the Pharisee, how would you identify him? Self-righteous, very good one. Self-righteous, arrogant, right? And what about the tax collector? How would you qualify him? humble. So we see a contrast, don't we, between the one who's humble and the one who is, uh, exalts himself, according to verse uh, 14. It's, there's a real clear contrast statement there. The one who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And, and the contrast is given between the tax collector and the Pharisee, so that we understand that. Now, why do you think they use the tax collector as an example? Now, how does that relate to when you go back to the 10 um, lepers who were cured? No. So in both cases, Jesus uses the least liked person among the Jews to, to be the example of the one who actually demonstrates righteousness and whom Jesus recognizes it and blesses it, right? Yes. Yeah. And in, I guess it also, you know, it just shows you that God understands the nature of man and how we tend to categorize certain people, you know, and relegate them to importance or non-importance. I mean, he talks about even, you know, don't give the best seat to one person and to the other a lowly seat let, you know let let your get your um host be the one that exalts you don't exalt yourself and so we see this a lot in scripture all right so in one to eight then don't lose heart have faith and in nine to fourteen what is the message then when you've 
gone through this parable. Okay. Basically, humble yourself. Be, be one who is willing to be humbled. Okay. What was it the, that the um, Pharisee was putting his faith and trust in? In his, yes, he, in his own righteousness, right? He says that, he, verse 9, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Yeah. I didn't catch that either. That's interesting. I'm not like other people. I'm better than you. Yeah, you scum. Yes. That's right. There you go. That's right. So basically, he wants you to know you're not to uh, not to trust in your own righteousness. Do not trust in your own righteousness. <laughs> what did I just do? <laughs> I went to a new word here. S-N-E-S-S. So what happened is here, do not lose heart here. Do not trust in your own righteousness, right? But what do you do? You're to have faith and be persistent. And in this one, you're to be humble, right? So it's like it depends on which way you want to go with your titling. Do you want on the positive or the negative? Both are, are conveyed here. I thought it was really interested, uh, interesting. Let's go back to Luke 1 where Mary, when she is um, bestowed with this blessing of carrying the child, right, the, the Christ, uh, she gives a beautiful what they call Mary's song. And in it, she talks about this, Luke 1, 46 to 55. Somebody read that because it's really beautiful. And it kind of conveys this message real well. To Wow. I thought that was really good. I thought when I noticed, I don't even, something must have took me there in my work. Something probably gave me a reference about that. And I went over and read that and I went, that's perfect. That song that she sang is a perfect example of what God is saying here about you're not to trust in your own righteousness because God will bring down the ones who are proud. He sends away the rich. Now, what is he talking about there when he talks about the rich? He sends the rich away uh, empty-handed. Well, I, I've done everything that the law says I'm supposed to do, and Jesus said, well, go 
sell all your goods and give them to the poor. There you go. And come and follow me, and it's pretty easy. Yeah. So, so do you see how this is going to flow then into this next segment? Because he start, he goes to verses 15 to 17. He gives a little bit about how those. Uh, the attitude of those who will enter into the kingdom. Then he gives the opposite, a contrast statement about the the fact that it's hard for the wealthy to enter. And what you have to do is draw out of that. Why? Is it money in itself that makes it impossible to enter or hard to enter? No. It's the attitude of the heart of where you who where and who you are putting your reliance upon, who it is that you are exalting. So Mary's song, I thought, did a really good job of kind of pulling that all together and bringing in a good example of what's being said here. Okay, so um, so we see in 9 to 14, then, you're not to trust in your own righteousness, but you are to be humble. Um, God will be, uh, uh, the, the tax collector, what we see of him is he understood his sin nature, and he understood his own sinfulness, and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Um, and Jesus' reply, I tell you, this man went in his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, so now let's go to 15 to 17. And we continue with this flow of thought of who will enter or who will attain to the kingdom. Again, the kingdom keeps coming up, doesn't it? Um, so the kingdom of God is mentioned here. And who is it that will inherit that kingdom? Who does the kingdom belong to? To those who do what? That's right, have childlike faith. It doesn't exactly say it that way, but it does say it's those, it belongs to, um, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So in other words, it's those who accept it with that childlike um attitude correct so what is the attitude of a child what is it what are they actually saying the idea of innocence okay trust who you're putting your trust on and in right who you're who you're going to be dependent on when a child comes into any scenario with you just think of your own grandchildren or any little child that's in a, when they come in what do they how do they approach you Huh? There you go. An open heart. Open hands, an open heart. They just want to receive from you whatever you'll give to them. You know, I always think of my little kids, you know, my little grandchildren when they came, and it was just like, you know, Grandma, you know, what are we going to do today? Whatever you want to do, Grandma, you know. They want to bake cookies. We want to go play in the yard. We're going to go for a walk. I mean, they don't care. They just want to spend time with you. And that open heart and that humble attitude of, I'm not in charge, you're in charge. And I'm okay with that. I just want to spend time with you. That's the attitude I think that they're talking about here. He's saying it belongs to those such as these. So the kingdom belongs to those who have a childlike attitude.
Okay, so I'm going to put on here the idea of, the, of it, they, they come vulnerable, right? Or even needy, um, open heart, um, empty hands. If you compare that with the Pharisee in the previous section, what did he, what was he doing? Look at me, how great I am. I'm not like that man. I'm this. His own self-righteousness is what he was relying on. So he didn't come with an empty heart or an, or an empty hands and an open heart. He came with arrogance and pridefulness. He came thinking that he had something to offer in the, in the relationship, right? Rather than coming with his needs and with a confession of sin. So uh, empty hands and open heart. Okay, all right, humble. Uh, we should put that on there because the humility is the big thing. All right, now the contrast then comes in 18 to 27 to the receiving it like a child. Now he's going to give us a contrast when we get to 18 to 27. And so you could just draw a contrast between those two paragraphs because it shows you the, the distinction. What happens in 18 to 27? Yes. The ruler question of saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he asks the question, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus then replies to him, first of all, why do you call me good? Now, why do you think he asked that question? What do, I mean, Jesus says in reply, no one is good except God alone. So what do you think his point was? What was he trying to impress upon the man? Did he reject the man's praise that he was good? Did he reject it? Okay. Right, okay. And as a matter of fact, not only, I don't even think he's asking him what does good mean to you. He's really saying to you, you understand according to our law and our system of worship, no one is good except God. Do you get that? Right? Do you, are you, right? Okay, so if he's, if he's saying to him, you know that no one is good except God, why do you call me good? What do you think he's wanting him to go say? Because I'm God. He wants him to acknowledge that Jesus is God. All right, did you catch that in there? Because, so he, he, he takes him to a, a doctrinal truth in the, in the Judaistic system and says, you understand by our system of law and our worship of God, that no one is good except God. Why do you call me good? He's saying, I want you to acknowledge I'm God. That's what he wanted him to do. Now, he didn't quite go there, and he didn't wait for another answer. He just moved right on. I, maybe because he understood the heart wasn't there yet, and he really didn't want necessarily to go into a debate about that, but what he did want to do is make the point. I want you to understand... I am claiming to be God. I'm not rejecting your calling me good. I'm saying, why do you call me good? If you know that only God is good, why are you calling me good? 
And, and so his point was, I think, to make this doc doctrinal, establish a doctrine, basically. Who is God and who is man, right? Uh, Jesus is God, and he wanted to him to see that. Okay, and then he goes on, and he says, do you, do, uh, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And then the man said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. What did you see in that? There you go. Interesting that he talked about the commandments, but he, he, missed, he mentioned all kinds of commandments that have to do with relationship between men and men. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, right? Honor your mother and father. But what is the greatest commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Have no other gods before me, right? You, it, thou shalt not commit uh, uh, idolatry. There shall be no idols before me. And so he really takes him back, and he's, he, his answer is not, oh, well, don't have any idols before me, but his, his answer is um, sell all that you have. Yeah, he's actually taking him right back. You cannot have two masters. Now, has Jesus talked about that already? Go back to Luke 16. In verse 13, he talks about this. It's more than just that one verse, but 16, 13 really does a great job of kind of consolidating. Um, Kathy, do you have that open? Read that for us. And mammon meaning money, right? Cannot serve God and money. So he literally is saying to him here, your money has become your God. And you cannot have another God before me. I am to be the only God. Earlier in other passages, he talked about priorities also, right? Uh, you cannot uh, follow me unless you're willing to do what? Yes. If you're not willing to leave father and mother your own children, your own homes, your own possessions, if you're not willing to give all those things up. Now, Jesus does not necessarily dictate to, to anyone in particular that we have to give all those things up, does he? So it's not, a, it's not a directive that anyone who's a Christian has to be dirt poor and living on the streets, right? That's not what he's saying. What is he addressing is the heart, right? And what does he say about it then? There you go. You have to come to a place where I become first. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 2, the letter to um, Ephesus is you have left your first love. That was the rebuke against that church. They were serving God. They were, they were doing good deeds. I mean, he was praising them for all kinds of things. He says, but this one thing I have against you, you have left your first love. And what must be priority for every believer, every follower, is that God is the priority 
always. He takes first place in everything. He doesn't necessarily mean that he wants us to give up wealth, if you have wealth, if you're lucky enough to be blessed with wealth. It's not about that. It's about where are you putting your faith and trust in. When people are wealthy, what do they tend to be? What is their attitude about life and Sometimes it's, well, it would be for me if I had any. Greedy. Greed would be, would be what they, the idea of worldliness because world then pulls you aside or pulls you into it. There you go. The self-reliance. That's exactly where I wanted to go, Carol. It's, it's the contrast to hum, being humble. Instead of bowing before God and allowing him to be the leader, like in the child, come to him, be vulnerable, be open, become empty-handed, come to him in, in humility. Rather than being like a child in your approach to God, you come to God almost like the Pharisee previously who says he had his self-righteousness. This man, I've got my money. I've got something to offer to you, church. Let me, let me give you all this money, and you're going to appreciate me. And I'm going to have value because I have something to contribute. And they tend to have reliance upon their money rather than reliance upon God. It's an easy trap to fall into. And it's not, it's not really disparaging people who have wealth, I don't think. What it's doing is showing you the dangers of the, the entrapment that can happen for a person who has wealth. Well, you know, and it's also a little bit arrogant, isn't it? Oh, I've done all that. I've done that. I'm good. Check, check, check. So again, he's not coming empty-handed either or humbly either in that regard. And maybe Jesus was just a little bit taken aback. Okay, you've done all that? I don't think so. But okay, how, let me give you another one. Go sell all your possessions and come follow me. And he's like, oh, I can't do that, right? He was, what was the man's response? He went away very sad. Because why? Because he was extremely wealthy. And giving all that up was something that he could not do. And I, I do believe in this particular um, story, this record of this encounter with this man. Uh, specifically, I think that was Jesus' point, was to bring him. It isn't that Jesus probably literally wanted him to give everything up, but he wanted the man to come to a place where he saw that had become his God. And a person who's not willing to give it up. You know, had he given it up, what do you think God would have done? Probably blessed him. But I think about Job, when Job lost everything. And what did God do? He gave him double back. I'm, so God could do. In this man's life, though, Jesus, went, he, he really, he applied the, the sword right to the heart. He went right to the bone and marrow and divided it. And he said, your problem is... Your God is your self-sufficiency, and you have come to rely on the God of money and not the God of the universe. <laughs> it's fine. Yes. You're loving God. You're serving God. You're worshiping God. You know, and, and truly, um, and there are people whose spiritual gifting is giving. And for people who have that in particular, often they are people who've got a lot of wealth. God will give them the wealth so that they can contribute. I mean, it's really neat the way God works in that. Um, and but, but whether you're poor or rich, you should give, obviously. But I'm just saying people often are blessed with, with extra money so that you can give. So God doesn't want everybody poor, but what he wants is your priorities right. 
okay? And that's what the lesson is here. So he says in 18 to 27, it's hard to enter for the wealthy to enter. And it's because they are self-reliant and money is their God. And so what was that, Luke 16? Is that what I said? Luke 16? I think it was. Yeah, 16, 13. Okay, so there's that. Okay, so now... Is, 28 to 30. So it's very interesting to me how what we have done in this progression is moved from an eschatology plan, letting them know that there's a distinction, right, between what Jesus was going to do in his first coming and his second coming, talks about the horrors basically they're going to happen at the at the close of 17 with the with all the massive deaths right where the vultures are going to gather then he opens this one with giving him an exhortation of being persevering uh, not giving up right and then he goes on he says basically now he says what what are we now addressing what is on the whole what are these chapters all talking about Okay, yes. And how you enter into the kingdom. Who will be in that kingdom? We're talking about a kingdom that's coming because the question all the way back in 17 was, when is your kingdom coming? And now he's saying, let me tell you about who gets in that kingdom. I think you're focusing on the wrong question. <laughs> you want to know when? And I'm telling you, not now, but it will be revealed. But how are you going to get in? And so now he's saying... It's he who humbles himself that will enter, right? He is the one that will be what? Exalted. Or, or you could say enters. He who is humble will enter the kingdom. You could say that too as a title. Okay, so 28 to 30. What is the reply of the, uh, uh, the disciples? And what is it? How does Jesus encourage them? 28 to 30. Yeah. So had they? Had those disciples done that? Yeah. So they're looking at this. Now, why do you think they were questioned? Because their question was, um, well, 26 to 27 starts the question. When they heard, heard it said, then they said, well, then who can be saved, right? Who can enter that kingdom? Who can be saved? If the rich aren't getting in, who can be saved? Why that question? What was going on in their minds? What had they equated with those who get in? Money. Why do you think they equated money, that somebody gets money or has money, with the fact that that must be a person who gets into heaven? Okay. Under the law, what was the, how was the law established? What was the principles of the law? If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse. And if you go through the, 
the rendition of the blessings and the cursings. And the cursings are things like your your cattle dry up, your gra- your grounds don't give fruit. You I mean, basically, you can't make wealth. Everything you have gets taken away and dies. You don't even give birth to children uh, if you're being cursed, right? But on the blessing side, if you're obeying me, I'm going to do what? Give you more and bless you. And, be- and, beca- and, the, and the result of that is people like Abraham did what? <sighs> they exploded and they had masses of money. Or Job, lo- you know, he had lots of children and lots of money, right? So the, the idea that was going on in their head that Jesus is correcting is what? What's he correcting here at this point? Well, if their misunderstanding was that money equals God's blessing, what is he trying to correct? Does money actually mean God is blessing you? That if you have a lot of money, then you must be in right standing with God. And the answer to that is no. So that's what he's correcting here. He's correcting their perception about the idea of wealth because in, under the Judaistic system, the, those who had more money, they perceived as being more righteous. The more money you had, the more righteous you must be because God's blessing you. Are you catching this? Okay. Yes. Yes. And so they often looked upon people who were poor as even unclean, right? As, oh, we would never do that today. We don't look down on people who are poor and don't have a whole lot to offer, right? Do we still have these prejudices today about people groups? And, you know, it's, it, it does seem that way. And uh, often we look at people who are poor and we think they must be doing something wrong and God's not blessing them because if they would do it right, God would not, you know, leave them in that poverty state that he would bless them and bring them up. But that's not necessarily true, is it? No. Exactly. So, Why do you think God might leave someone even in poverty? Okay. That would be one, one real good point, just for their personal application. There you go. Because God needs examples in all categories and ranks of life, right? From the wealthy to the poor. We need, we need rich people who really love the Lord. We need them. But we also need some poor people who love the Lord too. And, and there's this wide spectrum, and, and most of us kind of fit in the middle somewhere. But you need some on each end because the, the faithful man who's dirt poor but still glorifies God, what an example they are. It's kind of like the man who's born with no arms and, you know, and, and he's got some other major disease, and yet he sits there and praises God, right? He, 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 he you know, you think of, um, I think of Joni, jo- Johnny Erickson Tata, is that her name? And she goes through this horrible thing where she's paralyzed, and what does she spend her life doing? Singing, of all things. She can't even take a breath without assistance, and yet she sings, and God blesses that. What a witness she is. Right? What a testimony to say, 
I know I'm in this place. Yes, God could heal me if he so chooses, but he's not choosing to. He's leaving me where I am so that I will be a witness and a testimony. So God needs it at both ends, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's a preacher, man. He's good. And he has a wife and children. Yeah, it is amazing. Yes. Okay, so. Yes. Right. What God is not trying to do is make this world a utopia. That's not his goal. He doesn't want, he, he also doesn't want everyone equal. This idea of socialism and making everyone equal on an equal plane is not true. The idea of um, things like certain, th- certain things are rights, human rights, that they're equating to things like health care, right? I know that's, a, a, I'm going to probably step on toes with someone. But n- nothing is a right. It is, it is all, God, what God wants is for God's people to love him Trust him, obey him, yes, live righteously. And certainly he will provide because he's promised that. But th- the deal is, will you live within the provision that he's given you? Will you live within the boundaries of how much he's given to you? And be content in it and still glorify him and still praise him. That's where he's wanting. And this man who was a rich man and left there sad because he would not give up his possessions, all, it di- all what Jesus did was expose where his priorities were. And Jesus and God was not the priority. Even though he, was he the one that he started out and said, "Um, who do you call me? Or was that the one before that? Where he says, um, why do you call me good? Yeah, that was him. So he says to this wealthy man, why do you call me good? He's already drawn him to a place to say, I'm God. I am, quote, the son of man. I am the promised seed. I am here. And you call me good, and, and you're correct in doing that. I just want to point that out. P.S. By the way, you, you say you kept all these other laws of, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself, but what about God? Go sell everything you have and come follow me. And he wasn't willing. So God is teaching us something. He also goes on because he starts when he follows in 28 to 30 then, Peter says to him, but Lord, we have done that. First of all, he was confused. Well, gosh, if the wealthy can't be saved, the question really was for him, I thought God blesses those who obey him. And so wealth should be an indication of me obeying God, and therefore he blesses. That was their misconception. So Jesus is correcting that. He's saying that's not always true. You know, there's other, there's other ways that God blesses, and God uses people in different ways areas, right? But here Peter says, behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And then Jesus says to him what? Mm-hmm. Those who leave, who leave everything behind what? Yes. Yes will receive much more and in the age to come eternal life. So in other words, there's no comparison between what you could possibly ever give up in this life, you guys. Nothing can compare to what was going to come 
where he talks about up, storing up treasures in heaven. What can exceed, what can outweigh the value of your eternal life and your, and your spending eternity with God? From this, if you compare with what you've got in this world, is there anything that's of more greater value to you than having that eternal life? And it shouldn't, there shouldn't be. And that's what, what Jesus tells his disciples. Look, if you've left anything in this world behind for my sake, you are going to receive much more and you will also, in the life to come, you will have eternal life. In the age to come, you will have eternal life. Much more. Okay, I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay, now let's go to 31 to 34. So he's talking about the, in the age to come, and, and he brings up the subject of eternal life, and then he turns his attention in this uh, unfolding of the storyline. Um, Um, he's giving them yet again another insight about what's about to happen, which he's just said before that he's going to be rejected and he's going to, he's going to suffer, right? Now he's going to bring it up again. And in this uh, statement here, what does he say? A couple of really important ones, I think. He starts in 31 saying what? Yes. Why? Because... All things that have been written through the prophets is a, about the Son of Man will be accomplished. I love that. So he's letting them know, look, this. just watch. Just open your eyes. Look around. See what do you see. And, the, and, and it's going to be accomplished. What the prophets have written about the Son of Man is going to be accomplished in me. So he, he tells them that. And then he goes on to explain about the, the idea about um, what's going to be accomplished is that he will what what's going to happen so basically 32 and 33 is a beautiful kind of in a nutshell gospel statement right he will be handed over to the gentiles he will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon and after they have scourged him they will kill him that's it no no there's more and on the third day he will rise again um but the disciples understood none of this, and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. It's not that they couldn't understand, but that God literally put a cloak, a little veil over their minds. Although he states it, he doesn't, he doesn't allow them to have full understanding. Now, why do you think that is? There you go. You got it. Exactly. That's right. So there's the, p the possibility on the one hand is, would be that maybe if they understood too much, they'd get scared and run away, right? Or there's the other side of it. What? They would prevent it from happening because they'd be so protective of him, understanding that he was truly God. If they fully had that conviction and insight, 
do you think they would have ever stood aside and they would die before they would allow him and the whole point to all that training they went for uh, through was that they would be a witness and a testimony on the earth after his resurrection so god needed them to live not die right trying to defend him and so by cloaking them he allowed them to um although be a little dismayed and and not fully understanding yet but one day they will now so let me take you some verses because these are really good john eleven twenty five. someone look that one up um who, who wants that one john 11 okay you got john 11 first corinthians 15 at 21 to 23 who has got that one who has first corinthians Okay, first, thank you. Okay, First Corinthians 15, 21 to 23. Uh, Romans 6, 5. You want to do that one, Kathy? Then our, la our, our last one, John 2, 19 to 22. Okay, and Don will do that one. John 2, 19 to 22. So let's just go progressively through these four verses because it talks about the idea of them not understanding and kind of what the agenda is that's going on behind this i think is explained a little bit in these so john eleven twenty five. okay so the established point is that he is the resurrection and the life and so when jesus is now at this point he has told him look i'm going to die and i'm going to resurrect so that's point one now the the second one first corinthians 15 who has that one okay good yes there you go now when he says to his disciples that he will die right he is going to die but he says i will rise again so he's showing us this resurrection he says in adam all die but in christ all will be risen so this insight tells us what who else is going to rise again not just jesus but who else all who have faith in jesus right all right now romans 6 5. Okay, so if we die with him, and if that's a fact, you've received his spirit, that is, a, that is an established covenant between you and God. If you've died to self, you are also going to be risen with him in like manner to his resurrection. Okay, now John 2, 19 to 22. There you go. So do you see what he, what he did in that last one? That was the most important one of the whole group. First of all, there's this progressive laying down of the fact that if you've died with him, you will also be raised with him. There's going to be a resurrection. And he says, I will resurrect. He says it here. He says, I am going, this is what's going to happen to me. They're going to mock me. They're going to mistreat me. They're going to scourge me. And they will kill me. But 
I will rise again on the third day. Now, oh, he doesn't add that part in here. He will rise again in 33. Um, th but what we see then in John chapter 2 is that those were things that he, was, he told them beforehand. They didn't understand or comprehend them at the moment. But later, when they happened, what happened to them? Aha. Uh -huh. It always brought back to remembrance. It's what God says in jo the Gospel of John about what's the work of the Holy Spirit is that he will bring things to remembrance. And that is exactly what happens. And so his disciples, although they didn't understand it or comprehend it here right in this moment, they will. They will later. Hindsight, right. And so, what, so it, how many times that has happened in my life, I can't tell you, where I, I didn't understand something at the moment, but then later something else happened. I remembered w that other event, and I went, oh, I get it, right? That's how I watch most of my movies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So 31 to 34, then, is Jesus, Jesus foretells. Um, he would die and resurrect or die and rise again. In essence, he's going to be the first fruit, basically, right? The first fruit of the resurrection. Now, this is really cool. Now we go to 35 to... Um, oh, Yes. Listen, this is what I was saying earlier. You can tell someone over and over and over, and they don't get it. They don't believe you. They don't hear it. It's in one ear. It's out the other. And I'm thinking, how many times does Jesus have to tell them? I am him. I am the expected one. I am the Christ. I am the, the son of man. I'm the one that you've been waiting on. And yet they're going, well, prove it. Well, give us a sign, right? And he keeps over and over. They are blind. They are blind. Well, yes. What is the advantage that you and I have as believers? Um, for, just for instance, because we're looking forward to the second coming, and as things are happening before our eyes, what advantage do we have that when we see it, we're going, oh, what is our advantage? We already have the Holy Spirit. Now, they were waiting on the coming of the Spirit. They, Jesus had not yet resurrected, right? He, he has to die and be resurrected, and 50 days later, he sends the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, then they begin having these aha moments. I remember when, I remember when. I, this is the importance of putting on a timeline in your mind what's going on in Luke. It's still Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have the Holy Spirit to help bring it to remembrance, and they haven't actually entered into the new covenant yet. They're still living under the law. So a lot of their questions, like, for instance, this question where he says, well, then who can be saved? If a rich man can't be saved, see, they're living under the law still. They're under the old covenant. Obey me and I will bless you. Disobey and I will curse. So th under the law, that, that line of thinking made sense, but Jesus came to make a new way. New, you can't put it in the old wineskin. You, 
That's what the whole struggle is throughout the whole era. And so um, as what um, Heinz said earlier, it really is, you, you do have to have a little compassion for even for the disciples who did have faith and, and were believing Jesus and had left their homes and were following him. And yet they were struggling because they didn't have the Holy Spirit to give full clarification. And it's not hindsight yet. It's all still in the future. It hadn't actually been fulfilled yet, and so they were still waiting. But the cool thing is what we are seeing very, very clearly here is Jesus keeps telling them, this is what's going to happen. I am going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem. They are going to crucify me, but I will rise again. And he keeps telling them that over and over. And what we just came through in 17, he splits the hairs between his first coming and his second coming. And he tells to his disciples, you are not going to see it. That coming of that, that physical kingdom is coming later. And in that day when it happens, it's going to be like this. There's going to be vultures eating the flesh of men because they're going to die. It's going to be a time of judgment. I'm coming to judge. So he makes, uh, he splits the hairs on. So he does tell them a lot, but they just don't totally get it yet, right? Okay, so we got one more paragraph. The last one, 35 to uh, 43. Um, in this section, we see Jesus is healing a blind man, right? Now, what we got to see how this time, this is just absolutely stellar the way he does this because he wraps up this entire section in a nice, neat little bow with one demonstration. So what, what's going on with this uh, man? What's wrong with him? He's blind and he's on the roadside and what's going on? He's begging. He's crying out to Jesus. And, and by the way, what does he call Jesus? Son of David. Okay, so they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. He, cry, he, he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So right there, you kind of get a little glimpse that this guy understands the the prophetic word, how Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to fulfill all that the prophets have written about me, right? He just said that in 31. Here, when he calls him son of David, that particular title, um, he's acknowledging that he understands there's to be a son that's coming, right? There's going to be a king that's coming. And healing is in his what? In his wings, right? And so that's why when Jesus would pass by, they would reach out to touch the hem of his garment because they knew that when that son of David came, he would bring healing in his wings. Do you remember that part of our Bible study earlier? Which is so cool. I know. It's awesome. Uh, th th that's thanks to Scott. Scott gave us that little insight. It was super. Um, okay, so he calls out uh, son of David, acknowledging who Jesus is. And what did his disciples or those around him say to the man that was calling out? Be quiet, right? But, do you see the contrast? But, I hope you marked it and I hope you put it in your, uh, out in the uh, observation worksheet and at Clareware that they told him to be quiet, but instead, what did he do? Okay, now what do we call that? Give me a, persistence. There you go. Isn't that amazing? So now we're seeing a demonstration of a person who is being persistent again. And what is the result of his persistence? He received healing. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus heals a blind man. His faith. Why does Jesus say he's healed? Receive your sight. What? Your faith has made you well. So his faith and his persistence 
are rewarded. Now, how does that tie into what we've just talked about, about all the coming of the kingdom of God? And what did he tell us to do? Be persistent and do not lose faith until he comes. And he demonstrates at the close of this particular section a demonstration of a man who was persistent and was rewarded. Your faith and your persistence, basically, is what he says, has made you well. Yes. Well, and that just shows his faith, right? He healed. Yes. And he didn't care that they were telling him to be quiet, right? His faith and his persistence. were rewarded. I just love the way that got all tied up in the, into this nice, like, he opened in the end, so it's got, you've got little bookends on it, right? John? Oh, Heinz. Heinz. Mercy. I know, I know. Yes, he does. As a matter of fact, mercy is one of the words that we marked. For instance, son of David, have mercy on me. And on this closing section, right? He says, the son of David, have mercy on me. And what does he do? He has mercy. Why? Because he was persistent in his faith. And, and he was, uh, and he did not give up. He just kept he kept coming to him as a little child. I love that. Very nice. Okay, so we did that. It took us about another hour, but we did all right. Thank you, guys. So that closes chapter 17 and 18.